Well, if we could, with the Lord's help, and the Lord's enabling this morning, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and if we just read again at verse 8, down to the verse 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. But particularly the words of verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When life is busy and you're caught up in all that's going on and all that, all that life has for you and you're trying to keep on top of everything, do you ever find yourself stopping and asking yourself, uh, what day of the week is it? You know, when everything is just too much for you, you're asking, what day of the week is it? And when we ask such a question like that, we ask it probably because we're so busy that we don't even have a moment to think. Life as we know it, It's just been running away from us. But you know, it should make us thankful for for days like today. Because today is a day that we should never forget. If we were to look at our calendar at home, it would tell us that today is not only Sunday the 16th of April. Our calendar would also tell us that it's Easter Sunday. But unfortunately, like everything else, Easter has become commercialised and Well, the true meaning of the resurrection, it has been overshadowed. Easter Sunday may be the name that we have given to this one day in the year, but whatever we want to call it, today is the Lord's Day. Today is the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week, and it's the day on which the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we are to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We are to celebrate the empty tomb and the defeat of sin and death and the grave. We are to celebrate Easter. And we are to celebrate the resurrection. But we are to celebrate it every Lord's Day. That's what the early church did. They met on the first day of the week. And that's what the church has done down throughout the centuries. We celebrate the resurrection. Not only on Easter Sunday, but every Lord's Day. Because every Lord's Day, it's a day of resurrection. It's the first day of the week. And we should be thankful for days like today. Because the Lord's Day, it's not only a day of resurrection, it's a day of rest. It's a day of rest. We have, when life is busy and we're caught up with all that's, that's going on around us and we're just rushing, rushing around, the Lord's Day is a day in which we can come aside from all our daily routines and all our tasks and rest. Was that not what Jesus said? The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And what Jesus meant was that we've been given the Lord's day to rest from work rather than an extra day to work. The Lord's day is for our physical and spiritual benefit. 
And that's why we should be thankful for the Lord's Day. A day like today. Because it's not only a day of resurrection. And it's not only a day of rest. But it's also a day of reflection. The Lord's Day is a day of reflection. It's not a day that we should waste our time. Whether it's, I don't know, catching up with soaps or watching football or movies or sitting on Facebook or whatever it is. The Lord's Day has been given to us as a day of reflection. In which we're to reflect upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're to reflect upon what impact the death and resurrection of Jesus is having upon our life. We're to reflect upon where we stand in relation to this crucified and risen Saviour. Because every one of us, we all have to ask ourselves whether or not we have bowed the knee before this resurrected King and committed our life to him. And you know, that's why the Lord's Day is so important. That's why we should come to church every Lord's Day, both morning and evening. That's why we should make a big thing of the Lord's Day, because we have good reason to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Because today is a day of resurrection. Today is a day of rest. Today is a day of of reflection. And because we have been given this special day in the week, we should desire to know more and more about Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And when you read anything Paul has written, you can see straight away that Jesus is the center of Paul's theology. Everything Paul has to say about the Christian life and about Christianity, it's all centered upon Jesus Christ. But in this passage in particular, Paul's greatest concern is that we know and that we experience the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul wants us to know for ourselves. He wants us to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And in order to express his concern, Paul speaks from personal experience of when he came to know and experience the power of the resurrection. And that's what I'd like us to see in this passage this morning. We can see three things in this passage. Paul's concern, Paul's confidence, and Paul's counting. Paul's concern, Paul's confidence, and Paul's counting. So we look first of all at Paul's concern. Look at verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So when Paul sent his letter to the Philippians, he was in Rome And he was under house arrest. Paul was awaiting execution for preaching the gospel and for making Jesus known. But Paul sent his letter to the Philippians to encourage them in their faith. Because the church in Philippi, it was very small and it was very fragile. And all the Christians there, they were young in the faith. And Philippi, as a place, it was a city, it was part of a a Roman colony. And it was a wealthy city. It was wealthy because it was located on a a key trade route between Europe and Asia. 
And everyone, they had to pass through this city of of Philippi in order to, to get to their destination or in order to trade their produce. And that was the reason Paul had passed through Philippi when he was on one of his missionary journeys. And during his short time there in Philippi, when he was on his missionary journey, Paul planted the church in Philippi. And we know that from the scriptures that there, are two, there were two key figures involved in this church. The first was this successful businesswoman called Lydia, who while listening to Paul preach, the Lord opened her heart. The second convert in Philippi was the local jailer. He had imprisoned Paul and Silas for disrupting the marketplace. But the jailer, if you read in Acts chapter 16, he is brought to ask that all-important question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And both the jailer and his family, they became part of this church. But because Philippi was part of this Gentile region, meaning that they weren't Jews, they didn't have an upbringing with the Old Testament, Because of this, the church in Philippi, it was a young church. They were very fragile. They were still learning about the Christian faith and what it means to be a Christian. And the danger that they faced as a church was that they could be easily misled. In fact, that was the danger that many of the churches had. And that's why Paul wrote so many letters to them. Because they didn't have a Bible in their own language like we do. They weren't established in their community like we are. And they didn't have the teaching and upbringing that we have been blessed with. And so Paul wrote to encourage these young Christians in their faith. And he taught them to avoid the worldliness that surrounded them. Because living in a wealthy city built on commerce. There were all these temptations around them. And it was easy to try and find joy in all these things. But the purpose of Paul's letter was to emphasize to these young Christians that through lasting Christian joy, he says it comes only from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying in this chapter is that true joy comes from knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And if you read through the whole letter, it's only a short letter, Sunday afternoon, something to do. If you read through this letter, you'll see that the dominant theme is the word, or the dominant theme is joy. Rejoicing or joy, it's repeated again and again. And that's the first thing Paul says here in chapter 1. In chapter 3 at verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul's concern is that the Philippian Christians find joy in knowing Jesus And the transforming power of his resurrection. Paul wants them to rejoice in their salvation. Rather than listen to all these false teachers. Who are crippling their faith. And trying to lead them astray. Paul's love and concern for these Philippians. Is that he says himself. It's no problem for me to repeat this. To repeat this teaching to you. And it seems that at verse 1. He's just about to conclude his letter. He says, finally, my brothers. But then this thought comes into his mind to encourage them to have joy in their faith. To have joy in their salvation. And know the power of the resurrection. And he wants to share it with them. And he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know, Paul refers to these teachers. They may have seemed very respectable and credible religious people, but Paul calls them wild dogs. They're stray animals, he says. And they're trying to lead others astray and spread a dangerous and potentially fatal disease. Because the disease which these religious dogs were spreading was that they were telling the Philippian Christians that they would never be acceptable to God unless they were circumcised. They said that their Christianity, it was sub-Christian. Because in order to be a faithful Christian, they said, and in order to be righteous in God's sight, the men in your church, they have to have the symbol of circumcision upon them. And what the false teachers were saying was, Having Jesus in your life is all well and good, but he's not enough. You need to be circumcised in order to be a proper Christian. You need to do more than just believe in order to be saved. And these false teachers, they were stealing the Christian joy of salvation from the Philippians by telling them that they weren't proper Christians, that they needed something more. And they needed to do something in order to be a proper Christian. But what Paul reminds the Philippians here by saying to them, he says to them, we are the circumcision. We're not to mutilate our flesh because we are circumcised in the heart. And you know, this issue of, you could call it proper Christianity, it wasn't just confined to the Philippians. Paul wrote to the Galatians, And he wrote to the Romans and he addressed the same problem. In fact, Paul said to the Romans that circumcision is no longer a matter of the flesh. It's not outward signs and symbols. It's a matter of the heart and a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying here. We're not to mutilate our flesh. He says, we are the circumcision who worship God by worship by the spirit of God. And glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's concern is that the Philippians don't listen to these wild dogs. And think that they need to do something more. In order to be a Christian. But you know my friend. Even though circumcision is not an issue anymore. The dogs are still far from dead. Because. The dogs, they're still out in the world. And the dogs are still in our heart. And they're trying to convince us that knowing Jesus and the transforming power of his resurrection is not enough. These dogs in the pulpits of our land and in the pulpits of our heart, they still tell us that Jesus is insufficient for our salvation. And that we need something more. That we need to do something. We need to pay something or have this experience or this feeling or this second blessing in order to be a proper Christian. But Paul is clear when he says in this chapter, that's rubbish. That's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And in order to explain to the Philippians and to us that our confidence in salvation And knowing Jesus and the power of the resurrection. In order to explain that it's nothing to do with our works. Nothing to do with what we do or how we feel. Paul tells us 
from his own experience. He speaks from personal experience. Paul tells his testimony. It's always good to listen to testimonies. And Paul testifies to the fact that his confidence is not in what he has done to save himself. His confidence is in what Jesus has done for him through his death and resurrection. Paul testifies to the impact of the, and, and the power of the resurrection. And so we've seen Paul's concern. He has this concern. Look out for the dogs. But then we see, secondly, Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. He says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in these verses, Paul becomes very personal with the congregation in Philippi. He wants them to see what genuine biblical Christianity is all about. And that there is joy in knowing Jesus and the transforming power of his resurrection. And so Paul, he tells his testimony and he, he, he reveals to these Philippians what he had thought guaranteed that he got to heaven. Paul explains that for many years throughout his life, he thought that he would get to heaven on his upbringing and by following various rules and regulations. He says that he had put all his confidence for salvation in the flesh. He had put all his confidence in himself and all his good works. And like many people, Paul thought that by being a good person and a good neighbor and a churchgoer and being knowledgeable a wee bit about the Bible, he thought that he was pleasing God and that these things gave him a right standing with God and that that made him acceptable to God. He thought that all these things were gain to him and of benefit to his standing with God and that they would profit him in every single way. But what Paul came to discover was that they were all leaving him at a loss. He says, they did nothing for me. They did nothing for my salvation. They did nothing for my eternal security because I always had to try harder and be better and work more diligently. Paul says, all these things that I thought were gain to me, they did nothing to ensure that I got to heaven. And just so we know how much confidence Paul had placed in all his works of salvation before he was converted he says if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more and he gives to us his spiritual CV and he says try and beat this but Paul he's not boasting of how good he was he's actually boasting of how blind he was and how lost he was and how much of a mess he was in. And how far away from God he actually was in his life. And he's saying to the Philippians. These, these, he's saying these false teachers. They're, they're telling you that you need to be circumcised in order to be a proper Christian. Well let me tell you. None of these things did anything for me. Not one of them made me a Christian. 
Not one of them gave me an access into heaven. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of God. I was a Jew from birth. I wasn't proselytized. I didn't convert from another religion to Judaism. I was a Jew from the womb. And only eight days old, I was given that covenant sign of circumcision. But that did nothing for my salvation. Absolutely nothing. It did nothing for me, he says. Then Paul goes on to say, I was from the people of Israel. I was part of God's covenant people. Whom God chose and loved and set apart as his own. I was part of Abraham's race. Whom God called and redeemed to himself. But that did nothing for my salvation. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. The smallest tribe of the twelve tribes in Israel. I was even named after the first king in Israel. Who came from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, he says. And I was named Saul. And the Lord changed my name to Paul. But even that did nothing for my salvation. And he goes on, he says, even more than that. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a thoroughbred Jew. My parents were Jews. My grandparents were Jews. My great-grandparents, they were all Jews. We were all Jewish. We were all brought up to go to the synagogue and attend the services and perform the rituals. But none of that did anything for my salvation. None of these things granted me favor with God. Not one of them gave me access into heaven. But you know, Paul, he doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say that when it came to the law of God, I was a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee. I lived according to the strictest possible rules of religion. I was a religious man. I lived an upright, holy, separate and pure life. I kept the commandments to the letter. I lived my life as a good person. Paul says that when it came to the law, I was a Pharisee. When it came to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I approved the execution of Christians. I entered house after house, dragging men and women out of their homes and throwing them into prison. I burned homes. I destroyed families. I tried to stamp out the cause of Christ completely. That's the zeal I had for my God. That's the blindness I had in my life. And the lostness and the utter depravity that I wanted to destroy Christianity. But more than that, says Paul. More than that, when it came to the righteousness of legalism, I was blameless. Blameless. I was the most legalistic person you'll ever meet. My life was governed by rules and regulations. I followed them with such vigor and dedication that you couldn't fault me. You couldn't point the finger at me. I was blameless, he says. I was blameless. But Paul isn't showing us how good he was. He's testifying to how blind he was and how lost he was and how much of a mess he was in and that he was so self-righteous that no one could tell him about his need of Jesus. But at the end of his testimony, Paul confesses that when he came to know Jesus and the transforming power of the gospel and of his resurrection, he says whatever gain he thought he had, Whatever profit he thought he had made, he now counts it all as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. 
And you know, with this, Paul is clearly telling us that his confidence, it wasn't in his upbringing. It wasn't in his law keeping. It wasn't in his church attendance. His confidence was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And you know, there are some people who still believe that what they do and what they have received in their youth will be enough to get them into heaven. There are some people who believe that their baptism as a child, that that will save them. They have this magical view of baptism, just like these false teachers had a magical view of circumcision. But the truth is, baptism does nothing for our salvation. It's a vow that parents make. It's a vow that a Christian makes in their adulthood. But it does nothing to save us. Some people think that their upbringing as a child, that that will have them give them a good footing with God. Just because they went to church in their youth. Attended Sunday school or their father was an elder or their mother was a godly woman. Some people think that their Bible knowledge or their church attendance or their good living or even their connection in some way to Christianity, that these things will earn them favor with God. But my friend Paul, as he tells his testimony here, he says, I tried it all. I tried it all. I tried to do it all myself. I tried to earn my way into heaven. I tried to be a good person. I tried to be faithful to God. But what I came to discover was that all my efforts and all my works and all my religion, they were utterly useless. All these things that I thought were gain to me, they did nothing for me. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Paul says that when he came to know Jesus, he gained everything. That's the wonder of it. He gained everything. And he gained it all, he says, through the power of the resurrection. And this is why in the last section we find Paul counting. He's counting what he has gained. And he's testifying to the impact that the power of the resurrection has had on his life. And you know, we have to ask ourselves, what impact is the power of the resurrection having upon my life? What impact is the power of the resurrection having upon my life? And so we've considered Paul's concern, Paul's confidence, but lastly we see Paul's counting. Paul's counting. If you look at verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. As we consider this last section, you know, we can follow Paul's train of thought as he tries to ensure the Philippians that it's not about what you do, it's about who you know. And you have to know Jesus, that's what he's saying. Paul has stressed his concern to the Philippians and to us 
that we need to know Jesus personally. And we need to experience this transforming power of the resurrection. We need to experience that in our lives. And he says that these wild dogs who go around spreading all this false teaching, they'll tell you that knowing Jesus and following Jesus and loving Jesus, they'll say it's not enough. They'll tell you that you need to do more in order to be a proper Christian. You need to do more than just believe in order to be saved. But as Paul has spoken from personal experience, he said that our confidence in Jesus doesn't come from anything to do with ourselves. He says, I tried it all. I tried to be the good person. I tried to be the churchgoer. I tried to live an upright life. But what I came to discover was that all my efforts, all my works, all my religion was utterly useless for me. All these things that I thought were gained to me, my circumcision, my upbringing, my religious observance, my biblical knowledge, my experiences, my legalism, all these things I thought were gained to me and profit to me and would advance me, they were actually leaving me at a loss. They were leaving me at a loss. They left me completely bankrupt with nothing to cling to. And when Paul begins to count it all, when he begins to weigh it all up and put all his works into the balances, he sees that it got him nowhere. They did nothing for him. They didn't earn him anything with God. He didn't gain this right standing with God or access into heaven. He was still going headlong towards a lost eternity in hell. Still going. But when Paul came to know Jesus... And when anyone comes to know Jesus and commit their, lives, their life to him, they discover for themselves that all these things that they thought were gain, it did nothing for them. And with Paul, they say, I count them as, as rubbish, as dung, useless, unprofitable, waste of time. I count all my works as loss because of the surpassing worth, he says, of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. The surpassing worth. And you'll see here that the language which Paul is using, it's the language of, of banking or accountancy. He's speaking about gain and loss. Profit and loss. And what he's saying is that all these things he thought were gain to him. And building up the revenue in his spiritual bank account they were actually leaving him in greater debt than he ever realized. But Paul says, what I came to discover was that knowing Jesus and being found in him, it was far better than all my works of righteousness. Because when I was found to be in Christ, when I committed my life to Jesus Christ, when I began to see that I couldn't do anything to save myself, but throw myself at his mercy and cry to God in forgiveness, it was then that I realized that following Jesus is not about what I can do for him, but it's all about what he has done for me. That's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. And Paul says, that's what gave to me the greatest joy. The greatest joy. I realized that it wasn't a legalistic righteousness that I needed. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. My legalistic righteousness, that left me at a loss. 
It left me bankrupt and indebted to God. But when I came to faith in Christ, when I entrusted myself to Jesus, when I committed my life to loving and following and serving Jesus Christ, I gained a righteousness that was not my own, but a righteousness that was gifted to me by Jesus Christ. Paul says, by faith in Jesus Christ, I was accounted as righteous in God's sight. My spiritual bank account that was in debt because I couldn't do anything to save myself. When I trusted myself to Jesus, my spiritual bank account was filled to capacity because Jesus filled it with his righteousness. And this is the teaching that Paul issues again and again throughout the New Testament. That when we commit our life to Jesus and live by faith, we are justified and made righteous in God's sight. And our justification, it doesn't depend upon what we do. It only depends upon what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's what Paul reminded the Corinthians. He made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God the Father made Jesus to be sin for us. He was accounted with our sin on the cross. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we are accounted with his righteousness. And that righteousness we receive by faith. That justification we experience by faith. And he says, it comes through the power of the resurrection. This is the beauty of it. It's all through the power of the resurrection. And that's what Paul said to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 4. He said that our faith in Jesus Christ. When we put faith in Jesus Christ. We are accounted as righteous in God's sight. Only because Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. And that's why Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have reconciliation with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you kept reading on into Romans chapter 6. Paul's letter to the church in Rome You'll see that Paul says the power of the resurrection which raised Jesus from the dead. That power, that power of the resurrection, he says, it's the same power which raises us from death in sin to life in Christ. It's the same power, the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that raises us out of our grave of sin and lostness and death and brings us to newness of life in Jesus Christ. My friend, when we commit our life to Jesus, we find true lasting joy in knowing Jesus and the transforming power. That brings us from death to life. The transforming power of the resurrection. <clears throat> but you know when we hear Paul speak. To the church in Rome about justification. Being justified by faith. Being righteous in God's sight. And when we hear about the power of the resurrection. 
we have to see that the church in Rome, which Paul wrote to long ago, it's not the same church in Rome we see today. Because on a day like today, the Roman Catholic Church will make a big thing of Easter Sunday. Lent is over. Good Friday is past. Easter Sunday is here. But when Paul spoke of the wild dogs who refused to believe that Jesus is enough, you could say that such a description fits the Roman Catholic Church. Because their message to countless millions is that Jesus is alive, but Jesus is not enough. And that was the message which sparked the Reformation 500 years ago. The reformers believed that they were facing the same concerns as what Paul is addressing here. The Roman Catholic Church had made people swallow the lie that God wouldn't accept them if they didn't carry out all their religious duties. And this is where Reformed theology and Roman Catholicism, it clearly diverges. In fact, all religions, all false religions, all man-centered religions, whether it's Roman Catholicism, Islam, Buddhism, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, Sikhism, Sikhism, whatever religion that doesn't elevate faith in Jesus Christ alone is a religion based upon self-justification in which they earn justification. They earn acceptance with God by being good people and doing good works. But my friend, any gospel that teaches that we need Jesus plus in order to be saved is a false gospel. Because as we said, the false teachers, they were emphasizing the need for Jesus plus circumcision. The Church of Rome, it's still bewitching people by putting fear into them that they need Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus penance, Jesus plus confession to the priest, Jesus plus the worship of Mary, Jesus plus the Mass, Jesus plus the Pope. And it always was and it always will be. Jesus plus for them. But you know, somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, the, blur, the, the lines have got blurred and that thought has crept into the church too. The Roman, the Reformed church. As we said, there are many who think that God accepts us because of our knowledge or our practice or what we do. Some people think, maybe you think, maybe you think that the message of the gospel is Jesus plus my baptism. Jesus plus my church attendance. Jesus plus my Sabbath keeping. Jesus plus my tithing. Jesus plus my hat. Jesus plus my suit. Jesus plus my Bible reading. Jesus plus my prayer life. Jesus plus the confession of faith. Jesus plus my spiritual experience. Jesus plus. Jesus plus. Jesus plus. No, 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 my friend. Paul is reminding us today. That in order to be a Christian, you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's all. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus alone. And from his own experience, Paul is saying to us, there is nothing in this life. Nothing in this life that compares to knowing Jesus and experiencing the transforming power of the resurrection. So my unconverted friend, get to know Jesus. Get to know him. 
Get to know him while you're still on mercy's ground. Get to know him while you still have breath in your lungs. Get to know him while he's still being offered to you. Get to know him today, now. And you don't need to be good enough to come to Jesus. That's not salvation. It's you come as you are. And all you have to do is just let go of all the things that you've ever held on to in your life up until now. Let go of it and cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus by committing your life to him. And he'll change you. He'll shape you. He'll transform you. You don't worry about all that. He'll do that. You come to him. And he'll transform you by the power of his resurrection. Because the promise of scripture, it's simple. And I don't mean to use that term simple, but in one sense it is. If you confess with your mouth. So we were saying to the children. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is my Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, out of the heart the mouth speaks. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Get to know this Jesus. Get to know him. And I hope that we'll all leave here today saying with the Apostle that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we give thanks to thee that that we worship a risen Saviour, that we are able to look to one who is exalted on high and enable us, we pray, to bow our knee before thee, to confess that without thee we can do nothing, but that with thee all things are possible, that thou wouldst speak to us, we pray, that thou wouldst challenge us from thy word, that thou wouldst remind us today that, as we can say with the hymn writer, that nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling, or that we would cling to Jesus and see that, He is one who is able to save to the uttermost. Bless us today, the Lord's day. Help us to glorify thee in it and to enjoy the day day that thou hast given to us. Go before us then, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We shall conclude by singing the words of Psalm 25. Psalm 25. The Scottish Psalter, page 231. Psalm 25, we're singing from verse 4 down to the verse mark 7. This is David's prayer. Asking for guidance and asking the Lord to forgive him. A prayer that we all need to pray. Show me thy ways, O Lord, thy paths, so teach thou me. And do thou lead me in thy truth, therein my teacher be. For thou art God that dost to me salvation send. And I upon thee all the day expecting do attend. 
Thy tender mercies, Lord, I pray thee to remember, and loving kindnesses for thee have been of old forever. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercy think on me, and for thy goodness great. These verses of Psalm 25, to God's praise. Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.